Welcome to Protect Our Past. It's the historic identity of Cape Cod and the islands that we are trying to save, and that's why we're here today. I'm Ellen Briggs, founder and president of this nonprofit organization. And if you haven't seen our recent film, Love Letter to Cape Cod, simply go to our website and, ch- and click to watch it there. It's www.protectourpast.org. Or go on to our YouTube site, and you can see our pop reels as well. We want to hear from you, especially your reaction to the film, so let us know your thoughts. Again, www.protectourpast.org. And if you want to show it at a venue near you, we have an organization, you want us to show it and and come here and and spend time with you, just contact me at info at protectourpast.org. Hey, Matt. So Ellen, good to how be, are you? Oh, I'm fine. It's so good to be back. I am really great because guess what? <gasps> Spring is here. It is here. Yeah, and it feels amazing. Just amazing. Well, it's great to be back here in the OMR studios. Always, always. So our guests can vouch firsthand how amazing it is outside here on Cape Cod as he is on the National Seashore. He is a way cool guy at the National Seashore, and he works there year-round. So, Matt, why don't you introduce him to us? Sure. Well, I always say that we have a special guest, and uh, so we have another special guest today, with uh, Bill Burke, who is a historian for the Cape Cod National Seashore. Um, Bill, welcome. Hi, everybody. It's nice to be here. Bill, tell us a little. Tell us a little bit about um, your time at the seashore. Um, I was hoping maybe you could give us some historical background on the seashore. Wasn't it established during the JFK administration, 63 approximately? Right, 1961, John F. Kennedy was president, signed the uh, legislation to create the park. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the uh, legwork for the legislation was put together from the mid-50s to the late 50s. Uh Uh-huh. Great. And it's approximately 40 miles of protected beaches, right? over 40,000 acres, and you've worked for the National Park Service since you came out of college, so back to 88. And what was your first assignment? Uh, I worked at Saratoga Battlefield uh, during college summers, uh-huh. and I was a historical reenactor for the National Park Service, oh. uh, wearing both the blue coat and the red coat. Wow. Wow. So you, you switched sides. So you were... Um, Benedict Arnold. <laughs> well, they had a they had a couple of red coats. They were all uh, really small on the shoulders, so um, it fit me, and so I did end up playing the red coat <laughs> for much of the summer. <laughs> wow! So, where are you from, New York? Uh, I'm from Western Massachusetts, Holyoke, Massachusetts. All right, that's close to the, the border, yeah. somewhat. And so, where did you get interested in history? Well, both my parents were children of immigrants, so uh, they always had a strong sense of their history from Europe. My dad's family was from Ireland, and mom's family was from Italy and Poland, and so they always instilled history at home, but it was the old world European style history. Yeah, that does make a difference when your parents are engaged, that it influences you. Pass wish, it along. I wish we saw more of that today. Absolutely. So how did you end up on Cape Cod? I'm sure there was a, you've been to multiple parks between then and Yeah, now. I, five or six other national parks, and then um, opportunity came here in the late 80s to come to Cape Cod National Seashore. It had the uh, natural beauty and the history and a lot of different types of history. So, Had you been here before? We had taken, like a lot of people who are wash ashores on Cape Cod, we used to take some family vacations here. And, you know, the sand gets in your shoes 
So that's how it started. Interesting, Alan. So your focus is on the natural and human history of Cape Cod. Um, let's start with the natural history of this peninsula. What did the landscape look like way back when, and what did, how's it changed since you came on station here? Well, if you take the broad the broad picture, uh, ten thousand years ago, that's when the last ice age was wrapping up. So the place was cold. There's mastodons and saber-toothed tigers, and the first native peoples were starting to drift up to the very edge of the ice. So it was a it was a tundra, northern Canada kind of environment. And then over the 10,000 years, uh, the climate warmed, sea levels rose, salt marshes developed, forests grew. So over the last couple of thousand years, of which we oftentimes reference in history, uh, a hardwood forest developed here in Cape Cod. Uh, native peoples living here oftentimes did... Uh, purposeful fires to keep the understory open for hunting. Um, but there was a concentration of native peoples living near freshwater and estuaries and food sources and salt marshes. So the Cape is, I think I've heard, correct me if I'm wrong, there are 365 ponds on Cape Cod. Is that accurate? Yeah, a lot of ponds all created by the last ice age for the most part. Um, as the ice started melting, there were big chunks left behind creating depressions, and those eventually were intersected with a freshwater lens coming up from underneath. So so there's plenty of fresh water for those who lived here. Absolutely. And the hardwoods, when you just say hardwoods, what are we talking about? So the pollen analysis uh, from pond bottoms and elsewhere shows hickory, beech, oak, um, you know, your classic hardwood forest along with pine. Um, so there was a a pretty established forest on Cape Cod. But the underlayer was a soil that was pretty thin, um, even after thousands of years. So humans utilizing the forest had to realize that, um, that there wasn't much deep, rich soil here that had developed even over thousands of years. Uh, so the Native Americans uh, tended to have a sustainable approach to harvesting some trees for building their shelters and for firewood, um, but it was they were pretty light on the land. So, when the people came across the pond, the, what the would big, the big the, pond? The, the big pond, <laughs> the big, yes, not these little little circular ones. Uh, what what was here? Uh, how did it look different from when the Native Americans first came? Uh, so, you know, the, the earliest accounts are the 1600s, the Pilgrims and Gosnold and Champlain, and they do describe hardwood forest upon arrival and some good topsoil. Um, but probably within about a half a century, um, the things changed pretty fast. The um, European or Western approach to uh, forest management and ecosystem management was you were create you were going to make sure that the environment was subservient to you <laughs> and that, um, you know, it was just a more intensive approach. And remember, they were the coming across the pond, they were wide-eyed at the size of the trees and the amount of the forest because back in Old England, most much of that had been deforested. They had already deforest, deforested over there, and then they came 
over here and they didn't learn their lesson obviously yeah i think they they felt as though it was, it was a limitless resource and they were coming from a very intensive wood culture where everything was made out of wood for the most part um, so they approached it pretty aggressively when they were trying to everything from building fish flake racks to dry fish out here to um, trying to boil salt water to create salt that required a lot of firewood uh, obviously building their houses so uh, they went after all the resources um, as if they were limitless. And With impunity. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't think they came over purposely to uh, rape the land, but they um, quickly found out that they were too heavy-handed. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to the 20th century bill. Um, we see a lot of these what people call pitch pines on the Cape, and I think they're actually black pines. And the story, or maybe it's urban legend or myth, is that those trees were planted during the FDR administration as part of the New Deal to put people back to work. Obviously, the pine is not indigenous to the Cape because it doesn't really have much value these days other than falling down. Yeah, so the pitch pine is the... Uh the common species here that that is a species that we believe is native um, but it is a it is a type of tree that requires full sun and doesn't like competition so anytime you see a pitch pine forest it's an indicator that um, much of the forest had been removed and this is a tree that's coming in as kind of a pioneer tree so was this a um, um, plan by uh, FDR put people back to work is that really true or was it some there's uh, another think, story to it uh, there's some truth to that i think the state of massachusetts beginning actually very early on in the late 1700s through the 1800s uh, was planting a whole variety of shrubs grasses and trees in order to stabilize the dunes um, we know that the dunes had been unleashed out here in provincetown in particular with all the sand because the Glacial makeup of the Provincetown Hook is different from the rest of the Cape. Uh, so there was this urgency and emergency to stop these large sand dunes from filling up, literally filling up the town. Um, and the, the Henry David Thoreau quotes about the schoolhouse being half buried in town are true. Uh, so there were all types of beach grass planting initiatives throughout the 1800s into the 20th century. Uh, and there were st still today when you explore out in the dunes in Provincetown, you'll see little stands of um, different types of pines, scotch pine that were planted, white pine that was planted as experimental trees to see which ones would grow quickly and just stabilize things quickly. So there's little stands of um, birch trees out there and you know, there's all little surprises. Scotch broom was planted, which was a non-native plant. Um, so the, these were all attempts to try to slow the dunes down and to vegetate them again. And it sort of worked? Yeah, it did. Um, you'll see some of the stands of trees. Some are, some are original from like the 1890s through the 1930s. Um, so, yeah, I'd say overall successful. Uh, beach grass planting tends to be the quickest way to really slow things down. Right. Well, I want to get back to some of the hardwoods because... I understand the pitch pine is not of any use in terms of building houses or even maybe used for firewood. First of all, address that. Is that really so? Um, pitch pine is not a bad firewood. Okay. Um, it has a lot of resin in it. All right. And actually the main, the, the main product from pitch pine was the pitch, that sticky stuff. 
um, that was used to uh, caulk ships, you know. Right. Um, but no, you wouldn't build a house with a pitch pine. Uh, the wood is soft and sappy, but it's not a bad firewood. Um, All right. So uh, going back to the early days when they started building houses on the Cape, they resourced what was growing at the time, which, as I understand, white Atlantic cedar in the swamps, red Atlantic cedar in the swamps. Were those both as well as white pine that was available then? Yeah, there were some hardwoods and some, some of the cedar available, but that was quickly spent up too as well. Um, so cedar is excellent for uh, fence posts because it's highly rot resistant. And also for cedar sliding, which we still use on our houses today. That's the gray shingles that uh, are lovely and hold up to the weather pretty well. But there wasn't a limitless supply of the white cedar. And so a lot of the cedar swamps were uh, cut down, and then many actually, ironically, were converted to cranberry bogs because they were in an area that um, were already swampy and had the peat that you need to kind of sustain a cranberry bog. So it was kind of a double whammy, uh, the deforestation for firewood and fencing, but then also beginning in the 1800s for cranberry production. And you were recently filmed, we filmed you recently walking through the Atlantic White Cedar Swamp in, in Wellfleet. And can you explain why this is such an important reminder of the past, Bill? Yeah, the, the White Cedar Swamp near the Marconi site in Wellfleet is a great, great place to hike. Um, so that's a, 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 one of the last remnants of a White Cedar Swamp on the Outer Cape. Uh, again, most of the other cedar swamps have uh, been cut completely and either have dried up or, again, converted to cranberry bogs. So that is a, a nice reminder when you walk through. Those trees are anywhere between 50 and 170 years old, so there's wow. some antiquity to those beautiful white cedars. And when we walked through with you and we were filming, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, you also said that there are a few red cedars that are beginning to... Yeah, those were the red maples. Um, red maples, okay. So the, so the red maples are wrestling with the white cedars uh, for control of a lot of these bogs. Um, and we're doing a study right now about uh, the consequences of that. But basically, red maples are more adept at um, kind of coming un under the understory of the white cedar. And eventually, if there's enough die off of the white cedar, they'll take over. Well, that's scary. So would me. you put that one in like an invasive species category? No, no, no. it's a natural process. It's a native tree. Uh, ironically, what's missing from the white cedar swamp in that particular location is natural disturbance. So there, all the fire, forest fires are suppressed now and mm -hmm. have been for a long time. Um, and if you don't kill off these older white cedars, uh, it actually makes them the forest as a whole more vulnerable to take over by red maple. I'm not I'm not painting this as a negative thing. It's just uh, natural. A natural yeah. progression. So they thing. don't need the fire tower in Wellfleet anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the suppression of wildfire has its uh, obviously has its uh, benefits of protecting life and property, but it's uh, it messes with natural succession and and the, the natural way trees tended to. Um, either retain their populations or get replaced. So when you suppress that natural source, it does have a, uh, an effect on natural processes. So if you had your way, could we reforest 
the Cape with white Atlantic cedar? Could we start a campaign and have seedlings planted and mm, shaking your head? (laughs) Now, the (laughs) white cedars need a very particular type of soil and moisture level. And they need, for example, when we were at the white cedar swamp, uh, there's, I believe, about 12 feet vertical depth of peat under the surface of the ground. And this is created by thousands of years of swamps. And the peat is the accumulation of all the plant material, pine needles, leaves, over thousands of years. So white cedar swamps uh, are, are this Cadillac of, of natural systems, but they require this incredible amount of existing peat layers, which can only be laid down naturally over a long time period. Um, I think much of the Cape, you know, when um, the early accounts from Thoreau, they talk about the Cape as, uh, you know, not a tree in sight. And the early photographs, the earliest photographs of Cape Cod from the Civil War period, and even a little bit earlier, show really a treeless uh, outer Cape Cod. And actually a lot of treeless of New England as the forests were, were logged. Um, so when you look at Cape Cod today from a plain, you know, much of the Cape is reforested. So there's no shortage of trees, but the makeup of the trees is different. It's the pioneer pitch pines and the black oaks, white oaks that are coming in. So uh, in terms of the forest, um, Cape Cod is reforesting because we're suppressing natu- uh, wildfires. Uh, and the only impacts to trees now are when you build houses in certain areas. Mm, and now you're beginning to get to my area of concern is the building of houses. Maybe we're just overdoing it. Yeah. Um, so, again, the trees are growing back, but it takes a long time to get to a hardwood forest. You have to, you have to start with your softwoods first, and then you work up to the, the beech trees and the maples. So those are the, the trees that require decent soil and several hundred years of forest succession. So we're not going to see that anytime soon. So how does all this wild wood management, for lack of a better phrase, be on a path with um, maintaining or managing erosion? Well, if it's erosion along the coastline, um, that's that's a different ball of wax. Um, Uh So, you know, trees are critical for maintaining erosion around pond shorelines, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. When you get a lot of people using a pond, um, you, you hope that the forest cover can kind of keep the soils from sliding into those ponds. Um, so they are critical. Uh, but shoreline erosion along the ocean is more of a beach grass um, uh-huh. system, not not really a forest system. Okay. Are we over building? Now, I'm just stepping back, looking at the whole cape. I drive up here to Provincetown, and I just see... You know, the, the remnants of the National Seashore, which is woods here, there, everywhere. And then you start heading down and into Central and Outer Cape, and it's like houses and buildings being built everywhere. At what point do we overbuild to lose the ability for the renourishing of this topography? Uh, yeah, so the the National Seashore was created to preserve much of the outer arm of the Cape, which it has. Uh, it's, it's fun to go up in a plane and look down and you can see where the, just by where the development is and where it isn't, uh, where the boundary of the park is, uh, literally by just looking at where houses have been built. So the National Seashore froze in time, the outer Cape, um, 
in, at, in its 1961 appearance. And much of the Outer Cape was never really uh, built on. There were pockets, there were villages, pockets uh, of houses in Wellfleet, Provincetown. Uh, but much of the Outer Cape historically was looked at as a wasteland. Uh, it was too close to that big, cold, windy ocean. And so that's one of the reasons why, even as late as the 1950s, the lands on the outer beach facing Europe uh, weren't, really weren't settled, and hence it was relatively easy to create a national seashore for beach recreation. But the rest of the Cape is uh, vulnerable to overdevelopment uh, and the effects of which we have seen already, which is water quality diminishing greatly, uh, the quality of salt marshes, and and really just the aesthetics of what the old Cape Cod used to be. So That's what we're trying to save, right, Ellen? You betcha. Now, I was talking to someone who's involved with historic restoration um, or preservation uh, in Barnstable area, and I realized she was talking about the marshes, and she has one near here. And I realized when I drove along 6A from maybe Dennis or Dennis even, that I start seeing lots of marshes on the bayside. And I guess there's some concern about what's happening with that, those areas. Yeah, salt marshes uh, developed here geologically pretty recently over the last couple of thousands of years. But what they do uh, is they stabilize the shoreline, and they're kind of the canary in the coal mine for the health of the waterways of Cape Cod. They absorb a lot of the pollutants from uh, people's houses and septic systems and commercial development, and they also are a buffer for coastal erosion and sea level rise. So salt marshes are extremely crucial to shoreline stabilization and to actually filter uh, water to purify it. So, uh, and they're a nursery for fish and shellfish. So salt marshes are an underplayed, underestimated um, resource that the National Seashore uh, spends a lot of time studying. And we are restoring one of the largest estuaries uh, in Massachusetts, the Herring River Estuary, as part of that effort in recognition of how important these salt marshes and estuaries really are. So. Wow. Ellen, what else we got? Well, I, I can talk with you all day long. Too bad we can't ask the listeners what they want to ask them. But ask, how about the widow, apparently? Yeah, you're a storyteller. Ellen's dying to ask you about that. Yeah, let's go there. Go for it. Is this your 15 minutes of fame? Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure it is. Well, uh, so I'm sure most of your listeners know about the pirate ship Witta. Uh, that was a, a ship that was built in England in 1716. It was built to be a trading ship. If you all remember your history book, uh, the triangular trade, where there would be ships going to uh, pick up sugar and rum and molasses from the West Indies and bringing it to America, then going back to England. Well, this ship, the Witta, also stopped frequently in Africa because it was a slave ship. And so part of their trade route was the ship would stop in Africa, pick up gold and pick up slaves, bring it to the West Indies and get the sugar, molasses and rum, then go up to the colonies and then go back to England. So it was a uh, quite a profitable circuit. Uh, the problem with the Widow was that it was captured by pirates uh, after its f uh, less than a year in service uh, when it was down in the West Indies. 
and Captain Sam Bellamy captured this uh, merchant ship that was involved with the triangular trade and commandeered it. And for about a six-month run, they, he used uh, the, this pirate ship to uh, capture all kinds of other ships and all kinds of other treasure. Uh, but then made the ill-fated decision towards the end of the, towards the beginning of the next year, uh, to try to make a run up to New England with all the the treasure from all kinds of ships that he had captured, and hit a storm off of Wellfleet in April of 1717, and the entire treasure ship uh, stranded on a sandbar and was completely wrecked. So. In 1984, fast forward, you know, 200 plus years, Barry Clifford and his group uh, discovered the Witta, and they are, since 1984, have been excavating the Witta uh, for educational purposes and for museums, and they have recovered lots of gold and silver and the ship's bell and clothing, and it's all taking place uh, right off uh, the shores of the Marconi area, and uh, they have a permit from the state and from the federal government. And they have a fantastic museum down in South Yarmouth. Wow. So it's a tremendous story. Ellen, we could almost do another show on that. Yes, that would be really fun, but we have to go down to the museum first. We but do. Ellen, I, I have to interrupt you yes. because our time's getting very small. Oh, There's a couple geez, shop floor items we want yes, to sweep up right here. Yes, go right ahead. You do it. Oh, no, you can do it. No, it's your okay. turn. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if we covered this at the beginning, but you can uh, visit us at our website at www.protectourpast.org. Uh, we have a variety of other social media outlets. You can find us on Facebook at Protect Our Past USA. You can go to YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. You can look at our pop reels, pop they're, clips. Uh, yeah, they're great. Reels. The, uh, they're reels now. They're, they're reels. Okay. The uh, YouTube and Instagram as well. Yes, Protect Our Past. We we have a lot for you to view and, and value. Um, and we want to hear from you. We want to know right. if you have any ideas for guests for us, if you have any ideas of uh, topics you want us or, to cover. Or if we should remain on the air, actually. Yeah, right? well, yeah, right. Well, <laughs> we'll just beg. We have to beg, maybe. But hopefully everybody's enjoying enough that we ought to be. Yeah, we do want to hear from folks. Yep. We have some other great guests coming up as well. But it has been a really interesting yep. time Thanks, with you, Bill Burke. It's just been amazing. I have to ask you quickly. Besides the Cape, what was your favorite national park that you worked in? Oh, well, I worked Jellystone. at... Jellystone. <laughs> <laughs> I worked at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. That was Oh, Independence Hall. Right. So did, if you're a historian, that is the holy grail of uh, American history, Declaration, Constitution. Yeah. What can we do to stimulate interest in history among the young? I think you have to make history fun in school. Okay. But I, so it's up to the teacher to make it fun. Mine weren't, by the way. But make yours it fun, were. make it fundamental. Oh, he's a clever one. Ellen, I think it's time for the quote, and I think it's my turn. Okay. Okay, go. so quote by John Sawhill In the end, a society will be defined not only by what it creates, by what we refuse to destroy. Think about it. Until next time, Ellen, we'll see you next time. Look forward to it. Thanks so Thanks, much. Thanks, everybody. Bye.